Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today I am talking to baritone Duncan Rock. In our chat we are discussing how his dedication to fitness, nutrition and a healthy lifestyle influences his international career as an opera singer and how by developing his own nutrition brand, Duncan combined health and art through his involvement with the Voice Care Centre in London. Hello Duncan, how are you? Nico, I'm, I'm well. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of What Would Mozart Do? Could I ask you to just introduce yourself to the listeners and talk about the various facets of your career? Sure. Well, I am a Scottish-born, Australian-raised child of an English father and a Brazilian mother. So a, a bit of a weird mix there. And I am a professional opera singer. Um, I studied at the Guildhall, as you know very well. We studied together. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a, a very fortunate to have a sort of decade or so long career uh, in the sort of international circuit as an opera singer, which of course, uh, you know, took a bit of a tumble uh, in the last year or so for very obvious COVID-related reasons. But it's given me an opportunity to focus a bit more on the other side of my professional life, which is uh, as a nutritionist. I have a master's in human nutrition and I own and run a bespoke nutrition consultation business called Duncan Rock Nutrition. Um, and I also work specifically with uh, voice performers and, and singers uh, at a clinic called the Voice Care Centre in London, which is a multidisciplinary clinic that uh, treats people with who uh, who are having vocal health-related disorders. Wonderful! Wow. So, where to start? Okay, let's start with the opera career. Sure. How did you end up from the Guildhall to the stages of the world? What was the process? You know, it, it was. A, I followed a, a well-trodden path. Uh, it was quick uh, um, due to some good fortune that I, I can outline. But, um, you know, it, it, nothing particularly out of the ordinary. You know, I graduated from Guildhall uh, a little bit early because um, I got picked up by Glyndebourne. I was a young artist at Glyndebourne for a season. And I was very fortunate because that was the year I graduated from Guildhall and Glyndebourne were doing a new production of Billy Budd. And they needed a lot of young men who looked like they could, you know, haul heavy ropes around a ship. So, I, you know, I think I fit that bill quite nicely. And Glyndebourne were extraordinarily kind to me, generous to me. And uh, they gave me the Christie Prize, which they give each year, um, and also sent me to the National Opera Studio and also got me an agent, actually. Mm -hmm. And then I did a year at the National Opera Studio and very fortunately, again, the year I graduated from the opera studio, the English National Opera were doing a new production of Billy Budd and happened to need a whole bunch of... <laughs> so that was a sort of good fortune because actually in my early career, the, mm. the companies that gave me the most work or the, you know, the best opportunities were the English National Opera and Glyndebourne. Um, so, you know, a bit of, you know, right place at right time, good fortune for me. And then it sort of just, it moved from there. You know, I, I got some a couple of small roles at the Royal Opera House. 
I, you know, sang in Madrid, I sang in Paris, you know, I got my first gig at the Met, which, you know, led to a few more co uh, contracts there. As and, it would. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> hopefully you don't mess up. Um, exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that was the sort of path I followed. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it's been, uh, well, quite a tremendous experience, actually. Um, very, very valuable um, experience I've had this last sort of 10 years since graduating. Great. I want to just rewind a little bit to the time when you were studying voice. This is more for those listeners who are young singers studying, um, thinking about careers, etc. As you said yourself, your, your career path from graduation to the various uh, wonderful theatres that you've sung in was on the one hand, serendipitous, but you also obviously have to have the instrument, you have to have done the work and be reliable, all those kind of things. What things happened for you or which things could you perhaps outline along the path that was surprising or that you weren't prepared for and you had to learn on the spot and i'm not talking about notes i'm talking about experiences which for whatever reason you weren't necessarily made aware of during your studies gosh it's a really good question look it, it, the thing that that jumped into my mind when you asked the question is you know i i had a bit of a shock when i got to england um mm -hmm. at how outmatched I was, if I'm honest, um, is really the only way to say it. Um, because, you know, in Australia, not only is it just a different experience being a, a sort of music student um, because of the culture um, mm -hmm. and the, just the, the volume of, of work, it just, there just isn't the system there that there is in the UK and in the States and in Europe. But I wasn't actually a full-time music student. I was at law school uh, when I won the scholarship to come over to the Guildhall. So I was... Although I had this love, uh, a sort of a very late developed love of classical music and opera, uh -huh. and I guess a certain amount of, you know, if I can say without sounding arrogant, you know, a certain amount of, sort of raw ability, I took to it quickly. Uh -huh. You know, when I got to the Guildhall at, uh, I was 20, oh gosh, 23 or so-ish, I was, you know, essentially a law student that liked to sing songs. <laughs> and, you know, going up against people who had been studying three, four, five years full time okay. at some of the best institutions in the world. So, you know, those years count for something, you know, all those English uh, song classes, all those French song classes, all those German song classes, they, they really count for something. And, and, you know, and the things that just simply take time, like learning languages, you know, I still to this day feel I'm catching up. Um, catching up on some things. Uh, and that's, you know, that's fine. You know, it's, it's just the, the hand I was dealt and I, you know, you, you have to play the hand you're dealt. But um, so that was quite, um, quite a shock, actually. I, um, I, I you, one could probably say I arrived quite arrogant because um, I just won this tremendous, you know, the scholarship I won was worth, you know, it was about, about $80,000 that I was right. granted in, in scholarships, you know, 45, 50,000 pounds. Um, so I, I thought I was really great, 
because of this generosity from this scholarship fund. So, you know, I had this thing and where I would often stay and practice for an hour at the end of class when I knew everyone else was at the pub <laughs> because I, it just gave me this psychological thing of they're all drinking and I'm practicing. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm catching up one hour, you yeah. know, <laughs> I know it's, 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 you know, a bit weird and maybe it, it could seem as like really competitive, but you know, I just felt like I, I had to, I felt like if I had any chance of, of um, making a go at this, I, this is just something I had to do. And, and yeah, so that, that was the, th I guess that's what stands out in my mind. Yeah. It's, it just strikes me that you're sort of practicing the extra hour whilst they're drinking. Um, it's interesting the mind games we can play with ourselves, yeah. especially in those um, institutions, you know, where I, I dare say every day is a competition. In some way or another, that you, you feel you have to compete with somebody next to you, right? Yeah. And, and look, uh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to sell the wrong version of myself i would go to the pub after you know oh, yes you know, I, <laughs> no, I, I, no we I, know that like, <laughs> yeah, yeah and often stay later so maybe i undid the hour but you know and and i don't if you could sort of read my mind or my emotional mental state it, there was no i wasn't being sort of vindictive or you know i just it it felt right it just felt yeah. right and and you know i loved particularly at the um in the opera course, you know, I loved my, my colleagues, you know, there were only 11 of us and they were all like beautiful people. Uh, some of whom I'm still very, very close to. Um, mm. So, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to get them. I'll show those guys. You know, I just, I honestly, I just wanted to be able to hold my own against people who I, I guess deep down, I thought were probably far better prepared than I was for the challenges ahead. Right. Now, I, I love how you very subtly dropped in there that you also studied law. Um, yes. So before we go on with, with your nutrition and the, the voice therapy work, I suppose yeah. you can call it, what from your studies at law prepared you for your career in music? Oh, I mean, gosh, you talk about competitiveness. Yeah. <laughs> the music, look, this is not to diminish, but nasty competitiveness, you don't know it until you've been in the law world. You know, that's, you know, it's it, because it's an adversarial system. I mean, yes, I, I recognize, you know, I always say to younger singers, yes, be competitive at the audition because you have to get the job. But once you've got it, it's a collaboration. You don't have to compete with your colleagues. You're not competing for stage time, for attention, who's got the loudest voice. Once you get the gig, you're together. But obviously to get the gig, you're competing against, you know, for me, all the baritones. Yeah. But the law system is inherently in its nature, adversarial, you versus me, who's going to win, you know? Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess two things pop to mind that, that I really take from law in that, I was prepared for something far nastier than, you know, what you get at the Guildhall. And, you know, it can get a little nasty, but it's nothing compared yeah. to what I've experienced. And also, I guess I, I even though I, I wanted to do well, 
I guess I always had in the back of my mind, well, you know, if I, you know, if I suck at singing, I could always just go back to Australia and be a lawyer. And that's fine. You know, there's no shame in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it, it took some of the pressure off, which, which is nice. Now, of course, that a few years into the profession, that, that went away because there's only so long you can stay away from profession, particularly a high-level profession like law before it just disappears from your exactly. life. I guess that's, you know, two general lessons that that, that practice taught me. But I, I guess also if we're talking about auditions, the speaking part where you have to converse with your with the panel, either be it to convince them <laughs> that you're the one <laughs> that have to get the role or any job interview, etc., like that, your experience in law must have fed into that. Possibly. I mean, in my, yeah, although I, I, I have to say, I think most singers are pretty good at that anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, very few singers are, all, are like afraid of public speaking. You know, right. they, 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 they are related skills. Do you, you know? think it's because you, you not tend to, nine out of 10 times, you're the ones facing the audience when you're singing. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of, as you know, me being a pianist, I look at the music and the, <laughs> and the keys. I don't have to look at the audience. Other solo instruments or chamber musicians, they would have an instrument between them and the audience. And we can, I mean, that's a different conversation altogether regarding feeling guarded by that instrument, etc. But you're completely just open that you're completely, for want of a better phrase, naked yeah. in front of the audience. So do you think that that is why singers tend to be better at public speaking and therefore thinking on their feet in an audition situation? I think it's very possible. Yeah. It, you just, you have to be comfortable being exposed like that. You know, you, mm-hmm. you play the saxophone, you play the flute, you don't play the vocal cords, you know, it's, yeah. you are the vocal cords. It's, it's a weird sort of extra level of, I guess, emotional connection to, to the instrument because it's, it's your body, you know? It's, yes. um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm sure it's possible and I'm sure they exist, but I would say very rare is the person who doesn't, who's not comfortable sort of speaking mm-hmm. in public, who would be comfortable singing in public. I think, they are related enough to, you know, to quite a strong correlation. Yeah. So now let's, you, you sort of spoken about the body and health already. So talk to me about your business, your nutrition business, Duncan Rock Nutrition. I couldn't come up with a, a cleverer title than just my name. <laughs> hey <laughs> maybe I'll change it's, it one day if I come up with something clever it's got a good rhythm to it <laughs> <laughs> for my so, ego I wanted my name there there you go <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come up with this what how what's the story behind that and how does that support not not necessarily financially I, I'm more thinking physically physically and the physicality of opera how does all of this nutritional work balance out your singing career sure well look 
the world of health and fitness, of which nutrition, I would say, is a really prominent part, mm. has been a consistent thread through my life. I played sport in high school and yeah, I always loved the gym and I was, you know, on the beach, you know, I was a beach boy for a while, you know, in, in Australia. And I, I didn't quite realize it until I came to the UK, but, you know, ingrained into Australian culture is this idea of uh, a healthy lifestyle actually enriching your life and providing you with the best possible quality of life. I do have to admit in the UK, it's, slightly different in a more prevalent notion seems to be this idea of adhering to healthy habits being a chore mm-hmm. oh i guess i i guess i should eat healthy tonight or i guess i should go for a run tomorrow you know it's a little bit different and also you know i mentioned earlier my mum is from brazil this is very much part of brazilian culture like why wouldn't you want to eat healthy food and be on the beach and get sun and go for a run and it's it's sort of it's just yeah. much more in in the bodies of the people and 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 reflected in in the health statistics so you know it it is just a very significant part of who i am mm. as a person but until my mid 20s or so it was a bit more on a superficial level you know i liked to you know have big arms and you know be strong be able to run you know i, I wanted to wear a tight t-shirt show off you know that, mm-hmm. that kind of super, something wrong with this but it, it's superficial you know mm-hmm. but i got really sick in my mid-20s i ruptured three discs in my lower back and uh, needed surgery I ended up in hospital for three months uh, with okay. a systemic MRSI infection that you can just, you know, you can pick them up in the hospital. It's rare, but it, it happens. It's very, very serious. So after this, I, you know, I went deeper. I went deeper. I realized, oh, maybe I'm not actually invincible. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, of course, maintained the, the, that, that level that I had, but I, I started thinking about longevity and mm-hmm. systemic, you know, inside out health. And that really led me to nutrition. And I, for some years, devoured nutrition books, exercise physiology books. You know, I wanted to learn how to get my back strong, but, but in the right way. You know, I don't, um, just to take a step back, the, the neurosurgeon who did my uh, surgery said, look, this is an unfortunate thing that's happened to you, but some of the best spines I've seen in people in their 70s were people that had problems in their 20s because they learned to, and I, I, it was my mantra. I was like, okay, I can do this. Um, Cause it was a really significant issue. Some people rupture three discs and are never quite the same. Um, and I do have the occasional back spasm still. It's unfortunately unavoidable, but for someone who's had the problems I've had, I'm in a very, very good physical place, you know, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm, I'm going on, but step forward a couple of years to 2018 some years into this journey and my then girlfriend now wife were talking about getting married and starting a family and i was coming to the end of another year of being away for like seven or eight months of that year you know lots and lots of travel which i loved but i recognized knowing myself that it wasn't really consistent with the lifestyle I wanted to have as a father. So I started looking into ways I could control my life a bit more because as much as I loved that world, that sort of 10 years of 
Madrid to Paris to New York to back to London. It was wonderful, but I knew it had a, a shelf life for me. <laughs> that you know, I, I still will travel and, and still enjoy it. But certainly, you know, if I could keep it to under five months of the year, I'd be very happy. So I started looking into ways I could do something else to allow me to say no to work when I didn't want to be away for five straight months, you know? Yeah. And I was, I remember very distinctly, I was in, I was in Brisbane. I was singing Don Giovanni with Opera Queensland and I was walking to the gym, surprise, surprise, listening <laughs> to like my ninth nutrition podcast that week. And I just thought, I, I think I have a fair amount of knowledge here. I wonder if this is something I could do. And I looked into it and I found a master's program that would allow me to study majority remotely at Deakin University in Melbourne. And I did it. And, uh, you know, slowly, slowly, slowly completed this master's degree. You know, I, I, I counted with my wife the other day. I, I think I studied this master's degree in nine different countries. You know, because I was traveling and, and, and studying at the same time. It was crazy. You know, I'd be in Boston and doing assignments and sending them to Australia, you know. And I finally finished that and set up, set up shop. And here we are. Sorry, that was the longest answer in the world. No, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I really love it. Thank you. And thank you also for talking about the injury. Things like that really makes an impact on one's, not only one's body, but also one's psyche. And I guess because we, we don't use the, the phrase that something is the backbone of the structure, we don't use that phrase lightly. It exists because it's something that keeps us upright. Um, and when that's being compromised, surely that must play or influence your psychological well-being as well. So may I ask how you kept on top of things and also the way that you, that you said you very meticulously went through the recovery. How has that influenced your work on stage? I mean, because you were prior to the injury, you probably would just have belly bud, just pick up a heavy rope or rope that looks very heavy, or you yeah. know, because you often have to pick up yeah. stuff that that look like it's heavier. And I suppose that has a, its own techniques. So, what were the immediate influences and impacts that it had on your performance? Well, a, a good analogy actually would be singing technique. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's you can get so far if you've got sort of raw talent singing badly. You know, you can get to a certain point, you know, heaving those high notes and <laughs> just, you know, grip it and rip it. Yeah. But it, it'll only get you so far until you run into problems. And it's, I think it's the same with, with human movement. I was, have always been exceptionally strong. You know, I, mm -hmm. when I was 12, I was already bigger than all my teachers you know, in school. And so I, I guess I, I, I never bothered. I was, you know, why, you know, everything was light, you know, it, it all came easily. So over the years of, of that bad sort of movement, it caused this just small problem, these tears in my discs, mm -hmm. which I, you know, I had a scan when I think I was like uh, 18 or so. And I remember the, the doctor said, look, you've got these tears. One day these discs are probably going to rupture. So 
prepare, <laughs> prepare yourself. Yeah. Um, and then lo and behold, they, they ruptured, you know, it, it was like learning good vocal technique, but for my whole body, uh, I can pick it up this way, but that's going to be suboptimal. That's going to take more energy. That's going to put more stress on my body. That's probably not going to mean I have a good spine when I'm 70. Whereas if I put, pick it up this way, I can do that for the next 50 years. You know, it was, it was an interesting experience having the injury because it was, it was when I was at Glyndebourne, first season. I just graduated and I was feeling on top of the world. I was a young artist and, and it just suddenly, it, everything changed. And I, I say, I will never forget how kind the powers that be, we'll call them at Glyndebourne, were to me because they didn't hold it against me. You know, they really could have just said, look, Dunk, this is unfortunate. Come back next year. No hard feelings. You know, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll give you another chance. But they didn't. They said, no, this, this stuff happens. And, and, you know, we still value you as a performer and we still value your future. And they, this is not the experience every injured performer goes through. And, and if I'm honest, you know, I just don't say it with bitterness, but well, I, I hope not to say it with bitterness, but I felt the desire to sort of write me off from some of the other people, the sort of, I guess, lower level staff in the mm -hmm. company. You know, fortunately, they weren't the people making the decisions. But, uh, you know, a few kind of comments thrown my way that I was like, well, hang on, it's, you know, it's not my fault. I got injured. You know, what? Yes. Uh, it, it happens. And uh, an analogy I would use is, you know, if a young athlete, you know, who's sort of, you know, working for, you know, a young football player with showing promise and already in a, in a, in a contract, I don't know, hurts their ankle or tweaks their ankle. They don't just say, okay, next. No, they, they nurture them. They have physiotherapists, they have osteopaths, they have performance psychologists, whatever. They don't, they, there's a system in place that recognizes the reality that athletes face problems just like every other human being. And I would say one of the few complaints, because um, I, I do love the opera world and the classical music world, it's a wonderful place. But one of the few complaints I might have is that we don't have that system at all. It's very much a, oh, well, next, you know, there's, there's someone else down the line. And that is the reason I started my, the work at the Voice Care Center, because we want to create that system and, and we are already part of it. You know, if somebody, you know, I have a young lady, for example, who uh, I was seeing this week, who 20 years old at the very start of a promising musical theater career, very promising career. And she got uh, esophageal cancer and was lost, just, you know, lost contracts and was left to her own devices. And that's such a shame, you know, yeah. that's brutal, actually, I would say. And, and the work we do at the Voice Care Center is supposed to provide this cushion, you know, that I think is essential. We, we, mm -hmm. we could do that in our world. So to talk a little bit more about the Voice Care Center. What does that cushion look like? How, how is it structured? And how are you trying or hoping or are already incorporating it into the industry? Sure. So it, it was an interesting start for me because actually when I started doing the nutrition stuff, I kind of had in my mind that I wanted to keep it separate from my singing work. I was like, you know what? There's going to be Duncan the singer and Duncan the nutritionist, and they're different people. And you know, I do, they don't. 
No one even needs to know. No singers need to know that I'm working as a nutritionist and no nutrition clients need to know I'm a singer. You know, that they're different. May, May I interrupt and ask why you had those feelings or why did, what was your reasoning behind that separation? It's a good question. And I'm not exactly sure. I think probably somewhere in there was a bit of a fear that it would look like it was a constellation. Oh, maybe Duncan's doing this because his, you know, his career isn't going well. Now, of course, that that wasn't the case, actually. You know, it was actually because I was, it was almost going too well. That I was traveling too much, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, and and, I, and I, actually, I felt I was missing a part of myself. My father was a scientist and, and I have this very, almost some would say to a fault, my wife would certainly say to a fault, desire to get to the truth of things, particularly in the scientific realm. And particularly in a field like nutritional science, where there is a lot of not so good advice out there. I do love getting to the heart of things. What do we actually know? What is the truth of this issue as we currently, you know, uh, our best knowledge? So, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure why the dichotomy. I, I guess I also thought it might be a bit cool. (laughs) <laughs> so, like, I'd be at a, I'd be, um, I don't know, like doing a rehearsal and I'd be like, oh, sorry, I can't uh, come out tonight. I've got clients. You know, I don't yes. know. I'd be like, <laughs> my ego, I know that's silly. But, <laughs> but, you know, but then I was approached by Stephen King, who's the owner of Voice Care Center, um, mm-hmm. who sort of found me through the whatever network. I was reluctant. I said, look, I, I kind of want to keep these things separate. But he convinced me with examples of case studies of people they'd worked with, you know, people who walked in, uh, you know, I can't talk, walked out singing. It's re- it was really, um, sounds like a sales pitch, but it, it was really inspiring. Actually, mm-hmm. I was uh, kind of amazed at how much good they can do. So basically the, the, the center is, it's a multidisciplinary treatment clinic. Mm-hmm. We have performance psychologists, we have speech therapists, we have physio, we have osteopath, we have vocal massage, we have a nutritionist, myself, we have a, a, a singing teacher who's also a, she's a, a Dr. Ginevra Williams, you know, very, very well researched, published, sort of scientific so, sort of singing teacher. Yeah. Um, and people come to us for all sorts of reasons. It's, you know, 99 out of 100 clients is a professional voice user of some kind, singer, voiceover artist, actor, whatever, you know, the occasional sort of um, school teacher or someone who just, mm-hmm. their voice isn't their, what they're being paid for, but it's an essential facet of their, of their job. And we, we help them. So, you know, there's a lot of similar chronic issues we face, issues with, you know, uh, reflux causing laryngitis, um, things like that. Some issues of chronic fatigue, burnout, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, and then quite often something a bit more serious, like the, the, the young woman I was just describing. And they get a sort of multidisciplinary treatment pathway. So they're, you know, depending on their needs, they might see, you know, if someone's suffering from a lot of chronic tension, they'll probably have a lot of vocal massage. And then maybe one session with myself, you know, just to make sure they're optimally hydrated and, you know, just to check out their diet, see if there's anything that can be tweaked. Or someone like the young lady I described, who, you know, she's having to have a, a, a low iodine diet prescription because she's having radioactive isotope iodine treatment. Right. You know, she, she's having a few sessions because actually it turns out diet is, a, is quite a fundamental part of her treatment. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really varied, really interesting. And, and actually, 
yeah, really fulfilling, fulfilling <laughs> work. Um, it's nice to, to see the direct result that the treatment gets people. Yes, I, I, I think the fulfilling part is, is important because as performers, we don't often see that. We trust it's there, that we've made a difference, that we've influenced somebody, that perhaps we made at least one person in the audience's day better. But we don't have any tangible proof for that. Whereas yeah. in this case, your work, you, you can see that from session to session, um, how that influences um, a person's career and health. And I, I mean, that must be really wonderful to see. And to it, be it, it is. It is. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I realize this is, you know, wishful thinking, um, not necessarily wishful thinking, but I realize this is comforting for me to tell myself this, but I truly believe that art makes the world a better place and enriches people's lives. You know, I, I really think there is tangible value to doing a beautiful performance. And, you know, person A might have been entertained. Great. Person B might have been bored. Well, that's a shame. Person C may have had a life-changing emotional experience that they'll never forget. You <laughs> never know. And, you know, you do sometimes get those people telling you that, which is yeah. glorious, you know. Um, but, yes, I, I completely understand what you mean. Like, it's, it's not that direct feedback loop so tangible as, as treating someone is. Yeah. yeah. And, and consistent, I guess. It, yes. There's, there's, the system is as such that you can get that feedback and feedback also that you know how to change things. What needs altering or adjusting that would be more fulfilling for them, but also for you in return. Yeah. Yeah. So Duncan, all the different facets of your career now, um, the nutrition and the vocal health, and of course, the sort of pillar being opera. How do you marry all these different facets in your own work in preparation and sustaining yourself when you're going through a run of performances as an opera singer? Sure. I mean, gosh, it's a great question. You know, two elements that I often see people who come to me at the Voice Care Centre really struggle with are energy levels and sleep quality. Mm -hmm. And I would say these are two absolutely essential pillars of necessity, to, you know, to, to, to perform at, at your optimum. You know, everyone knows what it feels like to have had a horrible night's sleep the night before and have to perform the next night. You know, it can be a, a painful experience, you know, really uh, unpleasant uh, and, and coupled with fear and anxiety and, oh my gosh, am I going to even get through the opera tonight? You know, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and, and these two things can really be positively affected through particularly nutrition, but just a general healthy lifestyle. And I've found over the years for myself, it, it's been something that I've really managed to master, you know, mm -hmm. particularly in an opera um, setting, you know, you might rehearse six, seven, eight hours a day. And when I really recognized that I'd had this nailed was that, you know, I would get up early and do something else and then go to rehearsals all day and then, you know, go to, go to the gym in the evening sort of thing. And, it, you know, I don't say that to sort of 
big myself up. It, it was it was something I couldn't do, and then I implemented some of the things I learned, and then I could do it. And that's something that I really try to impart on all the people who come and see me. You know, it, it's not about who's doing it the best. It's what you know. What could you do yesterday, and what can we change to make it better tomorrow? And then, of course, sleep quality. So many performers come to me complaining about their quality of sleep, particularly when they're traveling. And once again, this is something that can really be influenced through nutrition, exercise and, and lifestyle habits. But it just seems to be something that isn't in the, in the cultural knowledge. You know, it's, you, you'll get a lot of old wives tales, a lot of hearsay, oh, maybe this will help. Maybe this, someone trying to sell you a supplement, you know, but actually there is information in the scientific literature and surprise, surprise, it works. You know, I mentioned earlier that I sort of self-experiment a little bit um, <laughs> uh, in that I always like to try things out for myself. And, and um, I was really hooked when I would read the research of, you know, what seems to be most effective for the most amount of people and try it out. And, oh, you know, it worked. This was yeah. sort of what made me go, okay, this is, I, I can help people now because I actually know both anecdotally and, and uh, sort of systemically. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it certainly is something, unfortunately, I always say your health is very rarely a neutral quantity. It's either working in your favor or working against you. This is okay. un the unfortunate reality. And... If that's the case, I choose, I'll have it work in, in my favor. Because yeah. why not? You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, Duncan, thank you so much. This has been just fascinating to hear. I, I mean, especially the idea of having two Duncans and then having the one Duncan that's now multifaceted. That's great. <laughs> I think that's wonderful growth. <laughs> but in general, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your knowledge and i will be sure to add links to all your different platforms as it were to the thank show you. notes for the audience to listen to thank you and and you know i would say to any any performers out there who are experiencing some of the things we've touched on you know there is help out there for you you don't have to suffer in silence as, you know, of course I will not say any names, but as I went over the years, the amount of my colleagues, high level colleagues, you know, high, you know, more successful than I, who have, you know, suffered vocal polyps or chronic fatigue or, or some sort of health issue that negatively influenced their career, but felt they had to hide it. It's tremendous. It's, 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 it's kind of almost shocking the amount of people have to go through that. And, I, in as my small way, would very much like to be part of the culture of changing that. You know, performers, we're allowed to be people too. Um, yes. we, we expect a lot of ourselves and the industry expects a lot of us. And I don't think the recognition of the physical toll that that can take on, on, someone's, uh, on someone's body has quite been integrated into the culture of, mm -hmm. of classical music. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a bit of whatever hoopla, a couple of quite prominent people in the opera world were complaining that singers were getting sick too often. You know, oh, why are singers always pulling out? 
you know, they didn't do this in the 70s. I'm like, yeah, but they didn't, they didn't perform in 30 cities in, in a season, you know. Exactly. It, the expectations have changed and we need to be honest about it. We need to be honest about it. And change the, uh, not only change the industry that it's aware of how people are traveling much more these days for performances, but to systemically change the industry that you have the support as in the work that you're doing with um, with singers and vocal health, etc., that that becomes just part of the industry itself. Exactly, and and we have a model to follow. I realise the finance is different, and I I, I recognise you know expectations need to be realistic. But the model that high level athletes follow, I think, is is something we can emulate. Uh, mm-hmm. on on you know on a different scale you know obviously we're not dealing with contracts of 40,000 pounds a week you know but um, <laughs> no athlete is is ashamed to say they had a knee injury and no singer should be ashamed to say they had a, a vocal injury uh, i think exactly. that's it follows right well duncan thank you so much and i'm wishing you all the best for all your endeavors thank you so much nico it's really nice to see you Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Feel free to get in touch with me via Instagram at What Would Mozart Do? Follow me on Twitter or email info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.